0: Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. So you did it! Hooray! You adopted a kitten. Or sometimes cats of any age just come into our lives, right? They kind of knock at your door just like that and you say, come on in. So what should you do when you bring that new cat into your home? We will talk about that with Tabitha Cusera. But first, I feel a little wet. I hope you all have your life preserver on. We're about to take a deep dive into leptospirosis. And I begin with Dr. Natalie Marks talking about. I mean, you talk all around the country on this topic, all around the world, really. And it is a worldwide issue, isn't it?
1: It is, actually. You know, this is the most common what we call zoonotic disease worldwide. So that Which means is? it spreads from animals to humans. Um, and while there are certainly countries that have a much higher incidence than we do in the U.S., we still do see human cases of lepto here from time to time, some of them from our pets, actually.
0: So we'll talk about that. I want to talk about, uh, as I said, a deep dive into leptospirosis, the rarely talked about leptospirosis topics. Because really, this has been an issue around the world for decades decades and decades and decades and decades having to do... So let's go to a country like India, where sometimes, especially in rural areas, people bathe in the river, or they wash clothes in the river, where cows go in, and Mm -hmm. cows don't have diapers on necessarily. Wild animals go back and forth into the river, out of the river. How does leptospirosis occur, and it's a huge issue, I believe, in those types of countries... Uh, where this commonly occurs.
1: It is, and it's transmitted through the urine of animals that have been infected with this bacteria, but aren't necessarily showing signs. So many of them are considered what we call carriers, which means they act perfectly normal, outwardly, but they will urinate this bacteria out into standing water sources, soils, streams, even puddles on the street. But in the reference you're referring to, those cows are urinating in the same water that many people are bathing or washing clothes in or up, you know, obtaining water to drink,
0: yes, yeah, sometimes,
1: and, yes, and unfortunately, there can be spread. and we've had that happen in the u s in triathlons. there's been transmission of lepto. There's been transmission in hot springs where people tend to kind of lounge and somehow get water, obviously accidentally drinking it or a contamination on their mucous membranes, like in their eyes or other areas. Um, but we've also had it just directly, uh, unfortunately, in even apartments so um, we can have it spread from the urine of our dogs who are carrying this bacteria and in puddles that are sitting on the floor and toddlers or adults or immunocompromised people can touch that and again have a transmission uh, through a mucous membrane or orally.
0: And I want to get to the United States in one second where it is not uncommon to see it in people is not as common as some other countries around the world, where I've read, and you're the expert, you'll tell me, it is the most common zoonotic disease on the planet. Is that true?
1: That is true. There's about 60,000 cases of lepto in humans worldwide every year, Um, but it is overrepresented in some of the other countries outside of the U.S., but still a huge problem. And the reason um, that lepto can be a problem twofold is, one, some of the signs of lepto are very vague. Lethargy, vomiting, headache, right? It can sound like just about any flu or other viral infection that we f- I feel like we have today. Um, but also, zoonotic disease is not commonly studied Um, There's not a lot of time spent on it in human medical schools. When I was in veterinary school, we were told, whether this is accurate today or not, but that human medical doctors, students, get one hour of zoonosis training in school while while they are a student. Hmm. One hour. So... Zoonotic disease is not usually top of the list for humans that are going in because they aren't feeling well. Um we veterinarians are probably the experts in zoonotic disease and I'm proud of that. <laughs> but Well
0: about, you're you're but, you're uh human health experts in the sense that when it comes to diseases that are transmitted by animals that is actually all kinds of animals and insects actually that is actually what veterinarians do actually actually study that's actually. right
1: you're actually correct in all of those areas Steve. Yes. i mean we we definitely have to know a, a wide range of disease that is spread through different vectors like you mentioned um but with humans that are diagnosed with leptospirosis um often as i was sort of alluding to lepto isn't top of the list and so it can be pretty advanced before we end up getting a diagnosis and treatment. And lepto in people can have some of the same effects that we see in uh, predominantly for us in our canine patients, our dogs, which is kidney and liver failure.
0: Which is not a good thing. No. All right. So in Chicago, we have been yet again named, ta da, the rattiest
1: city in America. Why am I bringing that up? Well, not just to celebrate because we're, we've certainly got <laughs> we a streak going here, yes. but it's a it is a very serious concern for veterinarians um, and should be for pet parents because rats are one of the key carriers of leptospirosis bacterium. And which means that when they urinate out in the alley by your house or uh, by Wrigley Field or in a park or by the dog beach or wherever they are, that um, urine, again, is a source of potential transmission to your dogs. And all dogs have to do is lick that puddle or lick the ground or step in it and lick their feet and we have a potential route of transmission of this disease, unknowingly. Um, leptospirosis also of course is a microscopic disease. We can't see that spread, right? You see a puddle of water, we can't tell if that bacterium is in that or not. So um, that's why when a lot of people think there's um, there's sort of this urban myth that I can just avoid lepto, right? I can just stay away from puddles. How? It, we that's can't? Crazy. Yeah, yeah, we can't. And that's why avoidance is not the strategy that we Want pet parents to think about with you, leptospirosis? You hear that, actually, we do. We do huh. because um, all
0: a dog has to do is walk in that puddle that's infected, and then lick those paws. And at this time of year, especially when yes. allergies are so profound,
1: yeah. And that you hit it right in the head. Like allergy season, I think is one of the. And it's interesting. We we often used to think leptospirosis had the highest incidence um, of of spread in the fall. And we used to think it was because we had a rainy spring and then we had all these the stuff just kind of sitting around stagnant and then our dogs would look at. But I would challenge, and I think there's probably some validity to it, that spring and we, we see lepto all year, but spring and fall, we see high peaks of this. And I think it's because we have all these dogs with sometimes uncontrolled allergies and all they're doing at night is lick, lick, lick as soon yeah. as they get in from a walk. And here we are waiting for transmission of lepto, especially in those dogs that are unvaccinated. And it doesn't
0: have to be a puddle. It could be this thing we call Lake Michigan.
1: It could be. Or it could just be the dew on the grass in the morning, right? It it just has to be some type of water or wet soil source that that dog has had exposure to, again, orally or through mucous membranes. If dogs are swimming in kind of this yucky pond or yes the dog beach at lake michigan where there's a lot of <laughs> urinating happening there um that it it doesn't take much to have that transmission occur and then our dogs are sick pretty quickly after that
0: okay two questions for you yes or no can dogs actually die from leptospirosis
1: that is an absolute yes
0: and can leptospirosis be prevented
1: Um, That is an absolute yes as well. And again, as much as we can possibly prevent any disease.
0: All right. So we'll talk about what can happen to your dog, what to look for as far as signs of leptospirosis, and also about prevention, the magic P word, when we come back on WGN. Dr. Natalie Marks is here talking about what I believe is like your favorite topic. Why are you, if, if you want to, if you're walking down the street, or if you see Dr. Marks at... Of uh, Kmart are there still kmart I don't
1: think there is kmart
0: <laughs> you won't see Doctor but Marks. if I'm
1: at Trader Joe's, you would see me at Trader Joe's there you go.
0: <laughs> Just mention leptospirosis, and she'll say,
1: Yay! Why why do you get so excited uh, about this? Well, you know, it's not so much that I get so excited about it. It's that this is a disease that we can do a huge job in preventing. This is a disease that I wish I didn't have to diagnose, but Mm -hmm. I do. And this is a disease that we don't have to see dogs dying from. Which they can. They they absolutely can, and unfortunately, we do see. So what are some
0: signs that your dog may, because unlike humans who can say, I don't feel well today, because sometimes those signs you said in people are rather subtle. What about dogs who can't tell us, I might be running a low grade fever today, for example?
1: Right. Well, there's sort of two presentations, we'll call them, that we see with dogs. So the classic textbook dog is the dog that comes in with exactly as you described. So they're warm to the touch, so they, ha- they do usually have a fever. They have GI signs like vomiting, diarrhea, a change in appetite. Typically, it's dwindled or it's very weird um, and erratic. Um, they're left. They're lethargic, so they're tired. They may walk like they're really achy, so very deliberate, slow movements. They don't really want to jump on the couch. It takes a while for them to get comfy, but then when they do get comfy, they kind of get up. So they they appear like you would feel like with the flu. Um, So that's sort of the classic appearance of a lepto dog. But we can see other presentations. So we can see dogs that just come in because they're drinking and peeing a lot but they act otherwise okay. We can see dogs that come in because they have bleeding abnormalities. So they might have little pinpoint dots that look like little red fle- freckles all over their belly or on their gums. Um, we can see dogs with eye changes. So their eyes might be really red and kind of bloodshot and their are conjunctiva so underneath their eyelids looks really swollen. And then we can see dogs that have no clinical signs. And those are to me the scariest because they are the carriers. These are the dogs that are walking around having lepto in their body. It's not causing them any issue, but they can be a source of transmission because they're peeing in the dog parks and the dog beach and maybe your your condo dog run, right? So that's not as common, but we certainly can see that happening. The big thing is is that lepto can look like just about anything, which is why, again, just thinking, oh, well, when my dog shows this sign, I'll know it's lepto. We don't always know that. And a lot of times when they start showing signs, they can be at a pretty advanced state of disease.
0: All right. So at that advanced stage of disease, we're talking about in dogs, mostly kidney disease?
1: We are. So kidney disease is in about 80% of these dogs. Although there are some serovars, serovar to us is sort of like a strain of lepto. There's a lot of different... There is. Over 200 different types. About 10 that affect our companion animals. Um, there, there are a few, and especially the ones from rats that like to go to the liver, and so we can see dogs then that. And again, it's not as certainly not as common as kidney, but some of our dogs come in in advanced stages. Yellow or jaundice, just like you would think of a person with active liver disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the same GI signs. So it can affect almost any organ. Um, leptobacteria is, is pretty fastidious and it likes to hide out in different places in the body too. The thing that also can be a little challenging for veterinarians is that many of the signs of lepto are also the signs that we see with tick diseases like Lyme disease or lichia anaplasma, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, these kinds of diseases. So, um again, it can take a little bit of time for us to get an accurate diagnosis, which is why prevention by far is the best strategy.
0: Once you've got a diagnosis, uh, unless it's really advanced kidney disease, which I know you do see,
1: mm-hmm. can it be treated? So it can be treated. The key, though, and again, the best prognosis is early and aggressive treatment. So antibiotics are part of this, typically fluid therapy, hospitalization, um, supportive medications for the GI tract to stop vomiting and diarrhea, nutritional support. And these can be not only time investment. The average is three to five days of hospitalization, just to kind of give pet parents a sort of a framework here. But these can be thousands of dollars. Yeah. And many of these dogs, even when they do recover, can end up with some chronic kidney disease. Because remember, kidney disease is not reversible. Once we damage the kidney, the damage is is there. And so even though they survive lepto, they may end up with us having to manage a dog that's a puppy, even, or a young dog, with chronic kidney disease. So that can certainly have the potential for shortening lifespan. Do
0: puppies somehow, some way? get leptospirosis more than adult dogs?
1: Well, that's such an interesting um, thought because we know in studies that have been done by the Ohio State University and and Jason Stills' group of epidemiologists, um, they did one actually here in Chicago looking at three years of lepto cases. There was a wide range. We saw puppies as young as eight weeks old getting lepto and we saw dogs as old as 13 getting lepto here. The thing that's the, the key about puppies is that there is a very strategic vaccine series that we put puppies through. Because it's really critical for them as their their immune system is sort of waning from their mom and they're growing their own immune system. That we're helping that immune system make these very special memory proteins to these diseases that we want them to be able to fight off. And if we miss vaccines or skip vaccines or sort of, you know, I'll do this one, but I'm going to wait till he's six months old to do that one. And we don't have really this really thoughtful and appropriate strategy Mm -hmm. that experts have created for us um, we can end up having lapses in protection and that means for adult dogs too a lot of people will rescue adult dogs we don't know their vaccine history right and we don't necessarily think about doing leptospirosis or maybe they're in an area where they don't think lepto exists lepto exists everywhere in the u.s urban, suburban, rural areas. It's not just, we thought, a hunting dog disease of the Appalachian Mountains that was many years ago. It's everywhere. So it's very important what, if your dog is eight weeks old or eight years old, anywhere in between to talk to your veterinarian about your dog's daily risks so that we can talk about vaccination.
0: And and since we're taking this deep dive into lepto, for people that go online, there are reports online that, no, don't get the vaccine because small dogs in particular will get a reaction to it. Uh, talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think I've heard every possible excuse of why my dog should not have lepto. Maybe not everyone, but I, I, over 20 years of practice, I certainly have heard my share. And some of them do have validity. So the vaccines that were in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s did have a higher reaction rate, um, which means that some of those, a lot more dogs, did have. You know, bumps after vaccine or, um, soreness or even a fever or, um, other types of reactions, vomiting. But what we do know is that there has been exponential improvements in vaccine technology through something called diafiltration, which is a process where as they're making the vaccine, they can filter out all these extraneous proteins that were responsible for a lot of these reactions to make it a much safer, but still incredibly efficacious vaccine. And so it's really important if you are a pet parent that has concerns about this vaccine, specifically the safety, it's very, very important to talk to your veterinarian as well as to there's quite a few great sources um, online. StopLepto.com is an awesome website that has a lot of great information for pet parents about this disease and also about vaccines. But it's crucial for you to make sure you're getting up-to-date information about what vaccines are like today, not from, again, you know several decades ago, which is where a lot of these started.
0: Right. I think we just all got continuing education credit for this conversation. (laughs) And I guess we'll meet you at Kmart soon. (laughs) Dr. Natalie Marks, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Next week on the show, this will be fascinating. Did you know that now increasingly hospitals are putting up images of dogs in hospital rooms? I mean, there aren't animal-assisted therapy dogs available everywhere, right? So if a real dog doesn't come in, it turns out that image of a dog... Actually helps the pe- helps people to feel a bit better. It doesn't work the same as the real thing, but it does make a difference. We'll talk about that next week on the program. In addition to that, Wayne Pacell will be here from Animal Wellness Action to talk about what's called the Fight Act and why we need to actually beef up the dog fighting laws. Why would we have to do that? Dog fighting is already a felony. It has to do greatly with online gambling. He'll be here next week to explain that right here on Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. She is a registered technician and now a specialist in behavior. If you happen to go to a veterinary conference, animal welfare conference, you may see Tabitha Casera, who's been speaking now for several years about cat-related issues. It is such a pleasure to finally have you on the radio, Tabitha. How are you?
2: Good. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, you are now a national name in all this, and you are, and and for good reason, and your perspective is a great one, and you'll all hear that in a moment. So this is where I begin, and it's the time of year to talk about this, I suppose. Let's say you adopt a kitten, or even an adult cat at a shelter, or... That's a cat knocking on your door, which I hope you heard. And you open the door, and the cat comes in, and you say, oh, I'll take in the cat. So what is the first piece of advice you would offer? And I'll lead you in a direction here. Presumably, statistically, most people already probably have at least one cat in that household. So knowing that, what advice do you give?
2: So, that is a great question. One of the first things I would say is to create a safe place for that cat. And ideally, prior to, but as you mentioned, Steve, sometimes cats just come into our lives knocking on our doors. Um, so, in that context, a safe room could be a bedroom, it could be a three tiered cat cage. Uh, they sell so many different options nowadays, especially for smaller kittens. But essentially, Introducing a cat or a kitten into a new environment, let alone to new animals and humans, it's a a lot. So having them start in a safe place, a room with all their resources, so, of course, scratchers, litter boxes, food and water. We want a cat-proof because cats are amazing, so we're going to cover those vents um, and ideally just leave the closet open, especially if the cat's fearful. They're going to get in there, so let's just create a nice, safe space for them where there's a box that you can peek in versus under the bed where you may not be able to access them or see them. Um, So providing safe hiding places is really important. And just allowing the cat to kind of decompress in that room, opening the carrier, not forcing contact. We're all about, I know Steve is too, we're all about consent. So allowing that cat to come out on their own and slowly introduce them to the rest of the house and as far as the other cat goes because many people do have other animals and cats it's important to have management in place so ideally we're going to separate them to start throwing cats together is never a good option Um, i'm sure it works for a few of you out there but prevention is key if we can prevent intercat aggression and negative associations why not and you have that opportunity with a new cat so it's important to have that safe place, go at that cat-specific pace, which may look different than your previous cat at home. And then when it comes to introducing them to the other animals in your home, being sure to break that down into small steps and not overwhelm not only the cat that you brought into your home, but sometimes that cat's comfortable to go to the next step. Hey, we can remove the baby yet, but the other cat isn't. So it's really important for us to assess all the animals' body language and respect that, and if they're showing a lot of signs of stress or fear, it's important for us to go back a step because if we create a negative association, it's harder to get help. And yes, six months, because there's no set time limit for when cats will get along. It's all about individual animals. So sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's five months, But what's five months of work for a lifetime of animals being happy together?
0: So in other words, yeah, I agree. And I think what you're saying is the more time you take, the better. And every individual circumstance is different. When you finally bring them together, how important is it that you do the best you can to have it be a positive experience? And I'm talking about, first of all, lowering anxiety. So if need be, using a... Nutraceutical, like zilkine, which is hydrolyzed milk protein for the cat, or maybe a pheromone product, maybe a combination of both those things, to even if the anxiety doesn't even seem to be there, to help ensure that it's not going to be there, using play, which is a great stress buster, but when you bring them together, bring out the heavy artillery salmon, tuna, sardines, something that they really enjoy, and then they're not together for life, but they're together briefly, and then you make that introduction gradual and as positive as possible.
2: Exactly. I I love calming aids. It's like, humans, you can't just tell me to stop being stressed about something and do yoga, but if you put me in an environment and there's classical music and a lavender smell and it's quiet... We're setting up that environment for me to be calmer. So calming aids are awesome. So feel away, and that's awesome also when creating that safe place. Can we play classical music? Can we, especially on first arrival, um, can we use feel away? Zilkine's a nutraceutical. There's so many other awesome options out there to consider when setting up the animals for success. And you made a wonderful point about high-value foods. So like you said, those heavy hitters, that good stuff. And it's super important to individually, that's another thing, look at each cat. I, I work with intercat aggression a lot. And in many cases, one cat's physical and mental needs maybe have been addressed. But if one cat has generalized anxiety or chronic pain, and we're not addressing that, and then we're asking them to think and learn and focus and be introduced to another cat, we're kind of setting them up to fail, essentially. So I think looking at each animal, whether it's a new introduction or a reintroduction, and making sure that their physical and mental needs, including medical issues, are well-managed is a huge part, but also asking each cat what they find reinforcing. I love pizza. Well, everyone loves pizza, but somebody might not love pizza. So we, we really need to ask each cat what they like, what treats do they like, before we put them in situations Where we're like, we want to create a positive association, because that cat might not like that type of play. They may not love tuna, so we need to ask them that
0: first. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned pizza. You're talking to a (laughs) Chicago audience. So yes, we all do love pizza. So (laughs) if the cat is adopted, say, from an animal shelter, perhaps from a rescue, probably at least a cursory veterinary exam has happened. However... If the cat has just knocked on your door and you're taking in the cat, you have no idea at all medically what's going on. How important either way, actually, is establishing a relationship with a veterinarian from the very beginning?
2: That is such a wonderful point. Um, This is something that we're both really passionate about because as a veterinary technician, we all love cats. They're the most popular pet. Yet, every year in vet med, we are seeing them less and less and less. Um, which is a a pandemic, I feel like. It's It's a pretty big concern because building that relationship with a vet, preventative care is, of course, ideal. And in an emergency, vets are doing the best they can. There's only so many veterinary professionals out there. And if you need your vet in an emergency situation, you already have a relationship. But also, I'm a huge fan of preventative exams, blood work, your analysis, vaccines, all of that lovely stuff. Because then we can help address and manage those issues sooner because we all want our cats to be comfortable and happy. And actually, it ends up being less costly. So similar to humans, like if I got preventative care and went to the doctor to tackle something and only needed to do one thing versus being in the ER, way more expensive. So actually, in the long run, it saves money. But also, preventative veterinary care is really important because baselines matter. And what I mean by that. Like, I always use my cat as an example. On her complete blood count, which is blood work, her white blood cells are low, and that is her baseline. Mm -hmm. So that's actually her normal. If your vet doesn't have that information, it's appropriate for that vet to work that up like, whoa, and maybe not be able to put finances or diagnostics into something else. So understanding your cat's baseline, whether it's their blood work or... As in, like kidney values or platelets, but also your cat's weight and hair coat. Without that baseline, it's a lot harder, as you can imagine, for that vet to make uh, accurate, quick diagnosis.
0: Absolutely, but to get the cat to the veterinarian, out comes the carrier. <laughs> now, what do you do? We will talk about that when we come back here on WGN with Tabitha Casera. Tabitha Casera is a registered veterinary technician specialist in behavior. We've just taken in a cat or adopted a cat. Now we want to take that cat to the veterinarian. If we're doing it the first time, Tabitha, do we have this huge advantage if we get it right? Because a carrier is, after all, a box, really. And we know how cats feel about boxes. I think they were invented for cats. Do some people lose that opportunity by making it or allowing it to be a negative experience?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. So just like humans, our cats are always learning. Every experience they have, they're forming associations, whether neutral, positive, or negative. So when it comes to transferring your cat to the vet the first time, although they may have had previous experiences that were stressful because sometimes we don't know, but you still have a lot of control to help set your cat up for success and you because, of course, you don't want your cat to be stressed. So, a few things that are great to start with is, I know it seems silly, but buying a carrier that's appropriately sized, I cannot begin to say how many cats, there's a lot of fear and stress because they can't move around or turn around. Think of a six-foot-five person on an airplane. I have empathy for them. They are uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah. So... It seems silly, and it's something I used to not think about seven years ago, but I see so many cats and carriers that are just not appropriately sized. And then also we definitely want to get a carrier where it can come apart. There's so many out there. There's ones with zipper tops. Um, there's ones with the screws that simply come apart because in vetmed we're getting away from, as you guys can imagine, which can be stressful, pulling and shaking cats out of carriers. That is a, a no-go Um, we should be luring them out with treats, allowing them to come out on their own. Or if they're fearful, we're going to take that lid off. So that's why we recommend carriers that clients purchase that can be taken apart easily. And then also, it's helpful to place the cat in the carrier. Ideally, you guys are going to use treats and toys to lure your cat into the carrier. But again, if there's previous fear and you're doing the best you can... We're definitely not going to put that cat through that door. We've all been there and seen the cartoon cat with all the paws out. I'm not sure. (laughs) The doors are very small. So we take the carrier apart and place them in gently versus pushing them through that door. And then also some other things you can do is leave the carrier out all the time. We've all heard that, but it's important to leave it out in a place you are. Our cats are really bonded to us and they want to hang out with us. So, that carrier in your basement that you're never in or any other cat's resources for that matter. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a variety of resources, but it's key for those things to be where you are. And then instead of the scary thing that comes out twice a year, it's just a like, like Steve said, it's just a lovely extra hiding space that I rest in sometimes. So, and we're going to give them treats and put lovely soft fleece blankets. Cats love fleece or whatever your cat loves. You're going to play with your cat in and around it when they're not going to the vet, and then we're going to carry a carrier like the beautiful gifts cats are not from the handle because they don't like roller coaster rides, <laughs> and carriers can break, which is we don't want it to happen, but that's that's happened. So we carry them from the bottom. So those are just a few things you can do to help set your kitties up for success.
0: And they are great tips. All right, so how do you at the very beginning? convince the cat and and I think this can be done even a cat who previously said I the carrier comes out I'm out of here I've got my passport out I'm going to Canada <laughs> so even for those cats is there a way to train the cats to have it be their idea to hop into the carrier you offered some tips but even for cats who have had previously a negative predisposition to the carrier
2: Yes, uh, cats can be trained. They're very smart creatures. That's a common myth. So I love that you mentioned this, Steve. Um, clicker training is a type of marker training that I commonly use. It's a type of positive reinforcement where you focus on what behavior you want and you reinforce the cats for those behaviors, and then that behavior increases, which is awesome. So there's a lot of different ways we can train a cat to choose, like you said, to go into their carrier on their own. And clicker training is a really great option. There's so many wonderful resources out there to check out. But also, if you're not comfortable using a clicker because that's a skill in its own right, or marker training, what you could do is okay, we're going to break it down into small steps. We're going to start with just the bottom of the carrier. And you might just have, I call it a treat station. So it's in your house and you have a treat station, which is like a mason jar of treats next to you, so you can easily reinforce wanted behaviors. And you might notice that your cat walks into there. You're going to reinforce them with a treat or verbal praise or petting if they like that. But treats are just easier for all of us. And then you may add the top, and you're going to give them a treat for going in there. Then you may – the cat is choosing to rest in there. Then you may close the door for one to three seconds, and they're getting treats. Or you can even use a licky mat, which is like a long-lasting treat. But the goal is we're going to gradually increase that time of being in the carrier. It might be four seconds to start, and then 10 seconds, and then a minute. And we're going to work at their pace. So if they're showing signs of stress, let me do it into the next step too soon. And then we're going to add lifting it up. And even I take my cat through Starbucks. Hey, guys, pup cups are for cats, too. Um, so if their only time in a car is when they're going to the vet when even though us veterinary professionals are great they might not feel good so taking them for fun rides is also a great way to help train them to not only tolerate the carrier but love it
0: or for that matter fun veterinary visits sometimes they're called victory visits now but whatever you call it The idea of going to the veterinarian, not for a checkup, but just for treats, and then you go home. Does it make sense to you?
2: Yeah, that's a great... Like you said, there's so many names out for it, happy visits, victory visits, but there's a lot of veterinarians out there. Just like in human medicine, we're getting a lot better at understanding that mental health and physical health are actually the exact same thing and equal importance. So a lot of veterinarians, thankfully... I love my field. We are starting to address not only the physical well-being of animals, but the emotional, which includes, hey, um, we're going to call our vet. And on Saturday, right before they close, when it's less chaotic, for example, or over lunch, you're going to say, can I just stop in, go in the exam room, use churu, let my cat lick off the licky mat for a minute, you say hi, and give them a treat, and then they go. A lot of vets would love to do that. And then that cat Like you said, that's so powerful. They're forming positive associations and going in the car and the carrier and going to the vet does not always result in, Things that may not be pleasant for them.
0: Well, I have a positive association with you, Tabitha (laughs) Casera, Registered Technician Specialist in Behavior. Thank you so much. It was years ago that there was a dog attack in Chicago. The Sun-Times covered it, the Tribune covered it, all the TV stations, and Alderman Shirley Coleman, it happened in her ward, went in the media to say, if I could ban all dogs, I would, but most certainly Rottweilers and Pitbulls. Well... At that point, cities all over the country were banning pit bull dogs or dogs they called pit bulls. And I said, no. I called the alderman's office. I had her on the radio. Uh, I, my pet show, I think, was on Saturday night at that point for a couple of hours. And I had her on the whole show and call after call after call after call, which she took, came in and said, alderman, this is why this doesn't make sense. Banning a specific breed or dogs you think are a specific breed. She listened, and ultimately, at the end of that, she did, after coming back from a commercial break, she did what I wanted her to do. Said, okay, Steve, you are now in charge of a blue ribbon committee that can rewrite the Animal Control Act any way you want, and if there's no breed specific in it, that's fine. I just want there to be fewer dog attacks. So we did. And whether it's a pit bull or Pomeranian or Poodle that attacks, the same penalty applies. That was the point. Well, meanwhile, cities all over were banning breeds. Chicago didn't because of that, which I'm very, very proud of. And The city tried a couple of other times to say, we want to ban dogs that look like pit bulls. And we always resisted. And dogs lived as a result. Denver didn't, but they rescinded their ban, and many other cities rescinded their bans in recent years. Finally, Miami-Dade County is rescinding their ban, which is great. Because, you know what, profiling based on how a dog looks makes zero sense. We'll be back next week, right here on WGN.